I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Doctors John and Julie Schwartz-Gottman have spent decades watching thousands of couples interact with each other at their lab at the Gottman Institute. They've recorded their conversations, making note of the words used and the tone of voice. They've observed body language and facial expressions, tested for physiological responses, and had the couples fill out detailed questionnaires. The Gottmans have compiled reams of data about what makes a positive, healthy, long-lasting relationship and what can tear a bond apart. The Gottmans have published and presented their findings over the years and are considered among the world's leading relationship scientists. Their new book is The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. It's based on their findings about the positive power of simple acts, like turning toward your partner or spouse and responding with interest when they make what the Gottmans call a bid for connection more later in the hour. The Gottmans have written a number of popular books about marriage, love, and relationships, and they join us today on The Connection. John Gottman, nice to have you with us. Thank you. And Julie Gottman, same to you. Thanks for joining us on the show. Of course. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, let me begin with the two of you. You have been married since the 1970s. You have been studying couples for about that same period of time. Julie Gottman, what have couples taught you and your husband about your relationship and how to be a couple? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I think we've learned everything from the 3,000 couples we've studied, Marty. So um, mostly what we've learned is how to process conflicts in a calm, caring way, uh, without exploding, without yelling, screaming, because we are like everybody else. We get into big escalated fights, and then we have to calm down. So our couples have taught us how to stay calm, how to be respectful of one another. And they've also taught us the big four, what we call horsemen of the apocalypse, to avoid when we're discussing a conflict. And those uh, horsemen include, and I'm scribbling here, um, contempt. What else? So there's contempt, which is the sulfuric acid for a relationship. It's the very worst uh, horseman, we shall call it, which means looking down on your partner from a place of superiority and putting them down from that place. Also, there is criticism, which is simply putting your partner down, not necessarily from superiority. Defensiveness, which means warding off an attack that you feel is coming from your partner. And then stonewalling, which means completely shutting down and giving your partner no clue that you're actually listening and processing what they are saying. John Gottman, let me turn to you. And and I did appreciate the fact that in the book, you do include a number of fights that you and Julie have had. And you said early on in your relationship, you were both very good at building grudges. Is that really common for couples? (laughs) Well, I, um, I would always, after an argument, I would always go into the other room and sulk and lick my wounds and try to build a grudge. Uh, uh, nobody talks to me like that. She treated me. <laughs> I found over time, I, I had a lot of trouble building a grudge because I had this voice that came into my head that said, yeah, you know, she took care of you when you were sick, you know, and she brings you tea when you're not feeling well. And 
you know, I, I would try to still that voice so I could build a better grudge. And eventually I found it impossible to do. <laughs> so you're not so good at building grudges today? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I feel very lucky about that. <laughs> I bet you do. Well, let me ask you again. This is looking at these thousands of couples that you have observed. And perhaps, uh, John Gottman, I'll turn back to you, which is what is the sort of one consistent problem that you think most couples, and, and we're talking about the diversity of couples, most couples have to grapple with? Well, I think the major thing that we've discovered is that in small moments when your partner is upset about something, either with you or upset about something in the world, in great relationships, people really stop. The world stops when their partner is upset and they listen. And that's really the defining characteristic, I think, um, that makes the difference between a great relationship and a relationship where, you know, things aren't working very well. That willingness to actually stop and take some time and really pay attention to what your partner is, is feeling and your partner needs. That's so interesting. And Julie, if I can go back to you. So it's not necessarily communicating about it. It's paying attention and listening to the problem at hand. Well, both are actually very important. For example, speaking uh, to your partner about a problem means you have to avoid those four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you do that by describing yourself, describing your own feelings about a particular situation, and then what your own personal need is. And let me emphasize a positive need is what you need to say as opposed to a negative need. And the difference between those is that a positive need is what you do want your partner to do so that your partner can shine for you. A negative need, on the other hand, is just resentment, anger, criticism. So we want to stick with describing our own positive needs to our partner and have our partner listen to those, take those in, maybe ask some questions to understand where that need is coming from in us, and hopefully then say yes, though that's not hmm. absolutely necessary for a good connection. So what you're saying is don't start the sentence with you always dot, 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 dot. Exactly, Marty. That's it. John, it's hard to listen. <laughs> it's hard to listen when someone might be something saying something that does feel critical or that they're not happy with. It's hard to hear that. Right. I mean, it's hard to respond without getting defensive. And that's the work in relationships is kind of tamping down your own defensiveness. And what helps me is I have a notebook in my back pocket. And I, when Julie's upset, I get out the notebook and I take notes on what she's telling me. And the more defensive I feel, the more I slow her down so I can write down everything she's saying. And Marty, I have to add that sometimes John has to fill two notebooks. <laughs> <laughs> he's got, he's got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> right. Well, that, that reminds me of something else you say in the book. And this is sort of as if you're in a couple is to act like an anthropologist. And maybe, John, that's what you're doing, right? You're taking notes. Right. That's right. Yeah, I'm trying to really 
be receptive to what she's saying. The other thing about uh, being an anthropologist is that you have to dig deep with questions that bring out underlying dreams, a core need, uh, perhaps a value that your partner is coming from when they are speaking their own feelings and needs. Because oftentimes, if, if partners just coast along the surface of a complaint or a need, you're not getting down to uh, the central substance of where that need is coming from. So question asking is very important, too. It's hard, though, to be, Julie, to be a dispassionate anthropologist when you're in a committed relationship. Yeah, that's true. And we're not talking about dispassionate necessarily, though I can see how you would think that. Instead, it's curiosity. It's, I want to understand, is there some childhood history that has to do with this need here? Is there a particular set of values or something that is really deep in your heart that is uh, generating this particular need of yours? Help me understand it better. Well, those kinds of those kinds of things. And John, let me pick up on that. And even going back to your book, you talk about keys to successful relationships. One, be curious about the other person. I guess that's where the questions come in. Admire okay. and appreciate the other person for what they do, for who they are, and turn towards each other to make when making this these bids for connection. Something that I mentioned in the introduction. Let's talk about these bids for connection. What does that look like? Yeah, they're everyday moments. And in our apartment lab, uh, where we had 130 couples spend uh, each spend 24 hours, we noticed that, especially the camera operators, noticed that there were these moments where one person kind of turned to the other and just maybe even wanted them to be interested. Like they may say, listen to this. You know, I just read this in the newspaper. And quite often there was no response by the partner. And sometimes an irritable response, like, will you be quiet? I'm trying to read. And sometimes a response that was, oh, yeah, what? What did you read? You know, just a simple question, just a curiosity. And usually when that turning toward happened, then there was a really nice interaction, a very small one. When people turned away, you know, we would often notice that the person making the bid would kind of crumple a little bit. <laughs> it was like, you know, there was a vacuum instead of getting a response. Uh, almost like two birds on a wire. One one beeps and the other one chimes in. <laughs> and that kind of feels good. Well, indeed it does. And Julie, going back to you, I, I'm sure someone listening could say, well, okay, I will feign, you know, and just I will turn towards my partner uh, when they do something. But But it... You have to mean it, and perhaps it tells us something about that relationship anyway, that someone is caring and curious. Yes, that's really true. You know, we found in our lab that uh, the people who turned towards each other's bids and had a successful relationship did so 86% of the time. The couples who failed who broke up later on down the road, only turned towards each other's bids 33% of the time. So look at that difference. It's enormous. 
It makes a huge difference in also the sense of humor people bring to conversations, the way they treat their partner during conflicts, the way they are in bed together. Is there real emotional connection as well as sexual connection? So turning towards, even though it's very small, makes a big, big difference. Well, we're almost up in a break here, but let me just read to our for our listeners some of the um, turn-toward moments that you include in this book. Eye contact, a smile, a sigh, a direct ask for your help or attention, saying good morning or good night, asking for a favor, reading something aloud to someone, pointing something out, calling your name from another room, seeming sad or down, physically carrying something heavy by themselves, seeming frustrated with the kids, for example. Those are several examples uh, from our guests talking about uh, bids for connection. And our guests are John Gutman and Julie Schwartz Gutman, and they are among the world's leading scientists when it comes to the to the science of relationships. They've got a new book. It's called Seven Days to More Intimacy. Excuse me. It's called The Love Prescription, and it's subtitled Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. The 1964 single by The Seekers titled, I'll Never Find Another You. And we asked our Facebook friends to suggest love songs. And that love song was suggested by um, Susan. We are talking today about love with the Gutmans and uh, Julie Gutman uh, and uh, John Gutman. And again, they've got a new book called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection and Joy. John, let me go back to you. And and I Googled this morning, what is the divorce rate in America? And it looks Mm -hmm. like about half of first marriages end in divorce. So clearly, either people are not picking the right person or they do not know how to sustain a relationship. How do you see the divorce rate? Well, it's held pretty steady recently. Uh, the, The pandemic really wound up making things worse for couples who were unhappy with one another. And uh, couples who were doing well actually got closer during the pandemic. So it seems like throwing people together and having more of a hothouse kind of relationship where they can't really escape winds up exacerbating whatever problems they have. So I'm seeing the divorce rate as reflecting that. Uh, The other thing we looked at uh, statistically was the increase in domestic violence during the pandemic, which also suggested that for some couples, more closeness involved more conflict rather than more intimacy and joy. And Julie, one of the things you say in this book is that it takes couples about six years 
uh, before they seek treatment. Six years, I guess, of, of a troubled relationship. Um, that's a long time to be either unhappy or dissatisfied or angry. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Marty. Um, you know, imagine this. If you found uh, a tumor, for example, in your chest, would you wait six years to go to the doctor? I don't think so. However, people feel still stigmatized by going into therapy and especially going into couples therapy. In America, as well as other cultures, we have, you know, the motto, uh, don't air your dirty laundry. Well, that includes even within the privacy of a professional's office. So as a result, it takes reaching the edge of the cliff before people will consider going into therapy. And oftentimes it's the, you know, trying to prevent the last straw from uh, dropping. So it makes it a little harder for uh, professionals to treat couples who've waited that long. But nonetheless, the interventions that we've developed based on what successful couples do seem to work and turn couples around so that they build a different kind of marriage going forward. And John, just picking up on that, it, 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 you know, there's so much at stake in, in a committed relationship, whether it's whether it's a marriage or not. And, and sometimes the kind of misery you know is is more comfortable than the the future that you might not know. Mm-hmm. The devil you know. Yeah, yeah, the devil you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's sometimes easier to adjust to things than actually face the fact that you yourself need to change. Uh, it's not just your partner that needs to change; you actually need to change as well. So being confronted with your own limitations is sometimes very painful for people. And Julie, as you mentioned, oftentimes when people when couples go for for treatment, it's you know, it's it's almost like a last ditch effort to do that. Is there such a thing as a good divorce from your perspective? Yes, I think there is. Um particularly when people understand that buffering their children if they have some is very very crucial to the children faring well even after a divorce. Most people think the divorce will crush kids, and certainly it makes them sad. There's no question about that. But if parents end up trying to alienate the child from the other parent or playing tug of war with the other parent, then the children are really hurt by that. Secondly, Typically, you know, we think that marriages end in a big explosion, for example, an affair or a big betrayal, a financial betrayal, something like that. But that's not really true. Hmm. Couples and their relationships in just apathy, not caring about one another. There's a lot of emotional distance that's built up over the years that they can no longer bridge. Perhaps they've just diverged into different, totally different lifestyles that they want. And so when they acknowledge that they both held some responsibility for what went wrong and they are letting go without uh, hostility and rage, that can create a much healthier divorce. John, do you think people 
divorce the way they marry? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Um, well, that, I, that if if it's um if it's a you know relatively stable but not particularly happy relationship, that that's sort mm-hmm. of how that how it's going to end versus a relationship that's just really contentious. Right, right. Well, you know, both things happen in uh, ending a relationship, and I think the challenge is really for people to realize that it's nobody's fault that the relationship has ended. They've just drifted apart. They've left one another lonely without really reaching across the chasm to be their partner's friend. So it's a failure of connection most of the time that ends a relationship. I got the impression, Julie, from reading the book that it's it's not enough to just love someone. You have to do something about it. Yeah, you know, that is so true. We like to say that the word love is a verb. It's not a noun. Uh, And what that means is that you have to show your partner your love. You have to do things, for example, or give yourself in a way in which your partner is really going to benefit rather than just thinking of yourself and what you're going to get out of it. Sometimes we see these contractual relationships where if I do this, you're going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the the constitution of the whole relationship. That doesn't work. It ends up failing because both people are constantly thinking about what they're getting and keeping score of how that compares to what their partner is getting. So, you know, the moral to the story is that you need to be thinking about what will benefit your partner as much or even more than you're thinking about what will benefit yourself. Not easy, John, to do that, to think beyond oneself and one's needs. That's right. In great relationships, people are always thinking for two, not just for one. So even if I'm alone, Julie's there with me. And I'm thinking about her, and I'm not really alone in a really good relationship. She's always with me, and I'm thinking about what she needs, not just what I need. Let me just quickly reintroduce the two of you. Our guests today on radio, excuse me, on The Connection are John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman, and they uh, are among the world's leading uh, authorities and scientists when it comes to love and marriage and relationships. They've written a number of books. They've presented papers. They've won awards, and they've got a, a new book called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. Julie, picking up on something you said earlier, just about, you know, betrayal, um, when they, and couples hurt each other and, and will sometimes betray each other in these sort of master couples, the ones that you, that are able to navigate some of these difficult times, how do they handle something as, as powerful as, as a betrayal or maybe, maybe even an affair? Well, Uh, First of all, I should say that most master couples don't have affairs. Okay, Uh, fair enough, yes. (laughs) Their mastery helps them avoid that. (laughs) However, um, 
What we see is that repair is incredibly important. So uh, let's talk about betrayal for a moment. The way that a couple recovers from an affair is uh, three stages that we've seen that really work. And we're doing research on this as we speak. First of all, uh, the partner who has been hurt needs to be able to express their feelings about the affair, how devastated they are, how hurt, angry, upset, terrified of the affair and future betrayal. They also need to express questions uh, to the person who hurt them that help them understand what happened. Uh, basically, they may be questions about where you met the other person, when you met them, did you give them this gift or that gift, where did you stay? Uh, it's always a mistake to ask about what kind of sex did you have, uh-huh. because for this reason, the person who's been betrayed typically suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder occurs when a person's world has been turned upside down, absolutely exploded in front of them. So just like walking past an IED and getting blown up, an affair is that way too. It's unpredictable. It catches the partner by shock and surprise, and it blows up their world and everything they believed about their partner. So they have to ask questions to really fully uh, get what happened during the affair. After that process is completed, then the couple looks at their marriage, but only after that first phase. So second phase, they look at their marriage and rebuild the marriage. I call it building marriage number two, Hmm. except it's a partner. And most of the time, these couples have had no idea of how to deal with conflict. They've tried, they've had escalated quarrels, and then they start stuffing down what they need to avoid quarrels. And that creates huge emotional distance and loneliness. That's the typical pattern we've seen in affairs. So they learn how to manage conflict better. They learn how to sustain friendship and closeness and intimacy in the ways that we describe in our book, Love Rx, uh, Love Prescriptions. And finally, in the third phase, that's where people really commit and recommit to one another, um, where there is much deeper attachment that is sought and given in that phase. And finally, the uh, marriage looks at, okay, what are the penalties if this happens again? And they talk about that openly as well. And then recovery is more or less complete. I mean, Julia, it sounds like you're saying that it's possible not just to recover from an affair, but to have a better relationship post-affair. Exactly, Marty. You know, that's what we've seen that is so beautiful. Most of these couples that have affairs have been terribly lonely, haven't been able to connect with one another, and nobody has taken Relationship 101 in high school when we really should be taught these things. So as a result, as they learn how to connect with one another much more deeply, much more intimately than they ever did before, 
marriage number two often turns out to be a whole lot better than marriage number one. Well, you are listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. John, I hear Julie saying, you know, no one, and it's true, we don't take Relationship 101. It's not offered in schools, but, you know, it sounds like we should do something about that. Yeah, we really should. And and part of what we're doing right now is building a Relationships 101 for middle school and high school kids so that they can learn about how to have a good, close relationship with somebody, uh, how to have a deep friendship as well as a deep love relationship as well. So we're trying to remedy that problem. How important, John, is sex to a committed relationship? Well, we think it's very important. For most people, it is. Uh, There are couples who are happily married and don't have sex. And uh, as far as we know, that happens to about 15% of couples over the age of 45. And so it's not absolutely necessary uh, for all relationships to have great sex. But um, the interesting thing is that in the largest study ever done on great sex with 70,000 people in 24 countries, the secrets of having great sex are these small moments, like telling your partner, I love you and meaning it, Uh, affection, even in public. And, you know, having weekly romantic dates and cuddling and having these rituals of connection where you really maintain intimacy in the relationship on a day by day basis. Julie, even beyond then sex, it's what I hear is is it's about touch. It's about physical contact. Yes, that is true. Um, Physical contact is part of it, uh, that expresses your love, your affection, your care, sometimes your sympathy or your empathy if your partner has had a terrible day at the office. But it's also that quality of listening that we talked about in the beginning of this hour, uh, in which people are wanting to listen to one another. They really do have interest in each other's worlds. And they want to stay in touch with each other's worlds over time as each person evolves in their needs, their beliefs, and their values. The book is about seven days. Can you repair a relationship, Julie, in seven days? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you're not going to repair it completely. After all, you know, how many hours are we talking about? Right, exactly. Right? Lots and lots of years, maybe, of unhappiness. However, what we wanted to do with this book is to have people experience a drop of difference in their relationship, a little like a drop of water when you're thirsty and crossing a desert. Is there any hope? Well, yes, there is. If people practice each of these little exercises every day for seven days, By the end of the seven days, I'm hoping they'll notice a change, a difference that feels good. Things are going to feel better than they did at the beginning of that week. And because they feel better, 
Our hope is that they will repeat those things that they practice during the week more and more often. After all, when we do something that feels good, we want to do more of it. Positive reinforcement, right? You bet. That's it. Exactly. Well, let's take another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation here on The Connection. Again, uh, that's Julie Schwartz-Gottman, also with us, John Gottman, and they are the co-authors of a book we've been talking about called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Again, we asked our Facebook friends to suggest love songs during this hour. That's Phil Collins' 1988 rendition of A Groovy Kind of Love, and this song suggested uh, by... Iris. And again, talking with John Gutman, Julie Schwartz Gutman, about their new book called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. And we've been talking about some of the small things that can make a big difference in a relationship. John, let me turn back to you. And, and uh, one of the things that you talk about is is the importance of asking for what you need in a relationship. And you also say that oftentimes growing up, we learned that asking for something that we need means that we're weak or that we're not worthy. Um, help us understand why this is such a can be such a difficult, difficult question or ask for an individual or for a couple. Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think a lot of times people feel unentitled to actually ask for what they need, and in these small bits for connection. There really is a longing for this connection. And if the partner can hear the longing and figure out what the need is and ask questions about it, then these needs can be resurfaced, these preferences, desires, and a connection is possible. On a, on a moment-by-moment basis, staying in touch with your partner is very powerful. Marty, can I? Yeah, please, Julie. Yeah, go ahead. On to that uh, answer, Um, just to address the fact that uh, in this country, needs are something that are a sin. You're not supposed to ask for what you need. 
Uh, we're supposed to be independent. We're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There's even been therapies that suggest unless you do not lean on each, you know, if you do not lean on each other, then you'll have a successful relationship, yeah. which is an absolute myth. And what we have to remember, Marty, is that we are pack animals, we humans. Mm-hmm. And as pack animals, which we've been for thousands and thousands of years, we have to depend on each other for our survival. That's crucial. For example, if you take an infant and you give them everything that they physically need, like food, water, milk, uh, holding even, well, not holding, you keep them dry, you keep them warm, you don't hold them, guess what? Much more likely to die. They call that failure to thrive. Well, what happens as humans, if we don't ask for what we need and connect with one another, we suffer a failure to thrive too. So it's very important for people to remember there's no such thing as too needy. Express those needs to your partner. Well, John, picking up on that, I'm thinking about, you know, our early teachers about relationships tend to be our parents or a parent if we have one, you know, if we just have one, but we are watching how they relate to other people. How powerful is that? And how much can that set the stage for what happens when someone grows up and becomes an adult and then has a relationship with another adult? Yeah, it's a very good point, Marty. Uh, In fact, um, Longitudinal research on studying children from infancy to adulthood and looking at what happens when they become parents. Turns out that what happens in infancy is absolutely critical. If people feel securely attached to their parents, then they wind up having kind of a resilience that allows them to really weather the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes, right? And if they're insecurely attached, then they actually go into life and relationships with a kind of deficit. And uh, and it's very hard to really meet that deficit later on. Uh, So what happens at the beginning is really absolutely critical. So we're fortunate enough to have our first grandchild Hmm. right now. Like you. He's 16 (laughs) months old. And we're very happy that his parents are such good parents. And he is very securely attached to them and to us, it turns out, as well. And so we're watching this young child develop with a sense of security and knowledge that he is loved and cherished. Yeah, I have two grandchildren, and it's a, it's a marvel to be able to sort of watch from a distance. But, Julie, there's, yeah. Julie, there's a reason. I mean, this show is called The Connection because— of just the importance for all of us as human beings, as you say, as pack animals, to be attached to one another, to be able to be with uh, with one another in, in this very complicated world. Yes, um, I, I totally endorse <laughs> that. You know, in this world, Marty, as you well know, and probably many of your listeners can see, the world is filled with conflict these days. There is polarization. People are screaming at each other rather than talking to one another. There's no negotiation. 
uh, people are standing, you know, digging their heels in about their position without listening to each other. And perhaps the sense that someone else is making who may not necessarily agree with you. So we are really devastated, I should say, by how much division there is in our culture and in the world itself. And that is part of why we wrote this book, to help people, even in those small, easy ways, to build connection. Because people often think connection is impossible. They can't do it. But actually, everyone can if they simply know how. Well, let me pick up on something. And, and John, I know you're the mathematician of, of the group here. Um, but mm-hmm. you, you have a really interesting um, uh, mathematical model, I guess, a, a ratio of positive to negative, five to one. Uh, if there is a conflict, um, five positive to one negative is a positive sign for conflict. Help us understand that. Well, it turns out that in in a good relationship, when when your partner is expressing something that you disagree with, if you're just listening, if you're just saying, hmm, interesting, uh, tell me more about that. Oh, well, that makes some sense. And, you know, in this listening, it's kind of like you're sprinkling uh, these little agreements, these little uh Ways of lubricating the interaction. By sugar. Just... It's sugar, honey. Maybe even <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, even if you disagree with your partner and you're kind of taking in what your partner is saying and saying, oh, interesting, rather than saying you're wrong, you know, and sort of having this standoff, it turns out that that ratio of five times as many positive as negatives really makes a huge difference in the way it feels to disagree with your partner. It feels like you're working on a problem together rather than working against one another. You also talk about the importance of staying connected during the day. And and frankly, Julie, I think with cell phones, it's possible to stay connected if you're, you know, across a city someone working someplace, someone working somewhere else, you can you can stay connected by sending texts or pictures or articles or things like that. True enough. Um, technology has really given us that advantage of being able to connect with one another. But there's a shadow side to technology also. And that is if you are trying to have a deeper conversation, let's say, talk out a conflict or talk out a negative incident that happened the night before over text or email. It's not going to work. So, you know, I caution your listeners to do not do that. Do it face to face. Because when you're only typing in something, um, you're missing all kinds of information from the listener or the sender of the message. You're missing their tone of voice, their facial expression, their body language. And oftentimes you can really misunderstand what they're saying via text. So we have to be very careful to limit uh, what we uh, send through technology to just short, brief, kinder messages as opposed to deep burning issues. You know, John, I'm thinking of people listening to us who have 
you know, children and work and busy family lives. He might be taking care of, you know, older members of the family as well. And I think right. for a lot of people, they just feel like, you know, I'm just treading water here. I'm just, you know, one, right. one inch away from drowning. And even a small gesture can feel like a really big ask. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of us are living kind of on the cusp of catastrophe at all times. And making that expenditure, turning toward bids for connection, sometimes seems like it's too much. But interestingly enough, when you give, when you love and you give and you don't think about what you're receiving, quite often you get a great deal back so that just, you know, just making love is really creating opportunity for connection and easing the stresses that people are feeling. You know, I feel so corny to talk about love. I don't know why I'm saying that, Julie. <laughs> um it- Marty, you're so sweet (laughs) and honest. I love you saying that. Um, You know, we've developed hard edges in this country, right? Yeah. With all that antipathy out there, all that uh, hatred and protest and, you know, dislike and disinformation, and we're being encouraged sometimes to... Uh, disagree with one another rather than negotiate with one another, then talking about something that is soft and warm and kind and compassionate, you know, feels like, I don't know, talcum powder you're sprinkling over a deep wound. You know, it's it's not working, um, they think. But in fact... It's actually the answer. Kindness, even. Connecting with kindness. Just a smile at somebody walking down the road is connection. It's perhaps not love, but it's a little tidbit of that. It's care, it's recognition, it's interest. So whenever I'm walking my dog down the street, and somebody is walking their dog in the opposite direction, I almost always stop, ask the name of the dog. The dogs sniff each other like dogs will. (laughs) We do not sniff each other, we owners. (laughs) You've learned something, right, yes. Right, but we introduce ourselves to each other and have a, a friendly, kind, good moment. And I'm smiling when I leave that moment, and I know the other person is too. So we actually have the power, even though it sounds corny, with just a little bit of love to change the whole structure of our culture if we chose to. Well, we are talking about love with Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman. They are psychologists and they have a new book called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection and Joy. And yes, you are listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. John, in doing homework for today's show, I ran, I kept running across this phrase, normal marital hatred. Um, <laughs> is that a real thing? Hmm. Wow, what a strange thing to say. Um, 
I guess I guess for some people it really is is true is their experience they experience their partner partner as their enemy or their very distant uh former lover and you know and that's a sad thing and it it turns out that that's what really ends relationships is this kind of loneliness and distance where your partner feels like the enemy or your partner feels like some stranger that you don't know very well. Mm. So if you live with that, it's a very sad situation. To be lonely and be in a relationship is probably the worst kind of loneliness to experience. So uh, what you're calling ordinary marital hatred Mm. is a very sad thing. And, you know, we deal with it all the time in couples therapy, where, where people come in alienated from one from one another, feeling unappreciated, feeling lonely, feeling distant, feeling like they can't do anything right. Their partner doesn't even like them, <laughs> let alone love them. And we have to slowly rebuild that love relationship. Often we do it by asking how they met and what they really liked about one another when they first met. And it's remarkable when we do that when we ask people about the history of their relationship, that flame of love comes back very quickly. And then we can help the couple sustain it on a day-to-day basis. And that's what the love prescription is about, how to maintain that intimacy over time in a real way and not neglect the relationship. Well, that's the perfect way to end our hour. And my thanks to both of you so much for joining us today on The Connection. And uh, you've been on our list of people to talk to because of the kind of research that you have been doing for decades now. Uh, Julie Schwartz-Gottman, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thanks so much, Marty. It was a delightful interview. Well, thank you very much. And John Gottman, thank you very much as well. And Thank again, you, Marty. You're very welcome. And again, their book is called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. I'm Marty Moscoin. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. And we close things out with Nancy Wilson's version of Be Beautiful. Love is funny or it's sad Or it's quiet or it's mad It's a good thing.